All right, in this review, we are doing period four, topic three. We're looking at politics of the market revolution. Along the way, we're going to learn why Andrew Jackson had to have a parrot removed from his funeral. One of the weird anecdotes about Andrew Jackson. Timeline-wise, we're going to be talking about Andrew Jackson a lot here today and the Second Great Awakening. Second Great Awakening is happening in the early 1800s. Uh, I would say it kind of reaches its peak in the 1820s, 1830s. Andrew Jackson will run for president in 1824 and lose, he will get elected in 1828, he will get reelected in 1832. And I just put this in perspective, the Civil War would be coming down the road in 1861. The first key question in your reading guide has to do with the Second Great Awakening and the causes and the consequences of it. So we talked about a Great Awakening earlier in this year. We talked about the First Great Awakening. And now we're looking at the Second Great Awakening. So the First Great Awakening was before the American Revolution, 1730s, 1740s. This one is the Second Great Awakening. This one is in the 1800s. There are some similarities. There are some differences. So let's get into it. So cause-wise, um, we're going to see a lot of revivals here. We're going to see a lot of uh, outdoor, big religious uh, revivals, lots of conversions. Um, at the time, here's what's going on. A lot of people think the millennium is imminent, like the end of the world millennium, like Christ's return, uh, that whole, like that definition of millennium. And a lot of people think that it will be triggered when the United, or excuse me, when the world has had kind of a, like a 1000 year uh, period where they've been cl uh, closing in on perfection. And uh, so it's, it's a kind of a, a lot of optimistic thinking here that, that human beings could perfect society, that there was no need for miracles, uh, that there was a step-by-step -step progression that was occurring. The age of kings was done. We were moving into more democratic republics were, were, uh, were gaining in popularity. Um, so there was some like the ordinary, ordinary people found some hope and some promise in this, this type of preaching and this type of uh, religious beliefs. Um, and so every advance, think about the context here, the market revolution is happening. There's new innovations around every corner. So every advance, every little new invention, every little uh, example of progress uh, was interpreted as a sign that Christ's return was imminent. And so a lot of people wanted to get right with, with religion if Christ was about to return to earth. All right, so there was, there was these massive camp revivals. One of the biggest ones was in Kentucky, and really early on in 1801, about 20,000 people gathered for a week. There'd be six to eight people preaching at any given moment. It was like a giant music festival. Uh, a lot of the preachers came away from that uh, and said there was probably more conceptions than conversions. There was a plenty of alcohol that was being passed around at that revival. But it was, it was very democratic. There was old and young there. There was male and female. There was black and white. There was many different denominations there. So in this sense, it is, does share some similarities with the First Great Awakening and that they were driven by these revivals where all of these different groups of people were coming together, uh, where you had old, young, black, white, male, female, many different denominations coming together for these big outdoor revivals. A, a cause that's more unique to the Second Great Awakening, though, would be the context of the market revolution here. The market revolution was increasing mobility. Think about the transportation improvements. It was allowing people, it made it easier for people to attend these revivals. Um, but these revivals were often being held outdoors because people were moving into pretty remote places and places that didn't have churches yet. 
And so they would, uh, people would show up. Like Charles D. Finney was probably the biggest name preacher of this movement. He traveled all over the country. Uh, and he would travel to the remote places with this gigantic tent that would hold somewhat, somewhere close to like 3,000 people. Uh, and you can read a quote from Charles G. Finney over there on the left. But he's talking about how he's trying to appeal to everybody. Harlots, drunkards, infidels, abandoned people who've been abandoned and try to awaken them and convert them. And so bringing in new souls into the church, that was this is kind of the, the leading belief of the time. Consequence-wise, you can see it in the chart on the top left, but the two denominations that are going to see the biggest growth are the Baptist Church and the Methodist Church. Overall, church membership is going to skyrocket. So it's going to go from about one in six people being a member of a church to one in three people in this country being a member of a church. Why the Methodists? Why the Baptists? They kind of have the lowest cost of entry for preachers. So they don't require any extensive uh, training. So you don't have to go away to, uh, to England to get an education. You don't have to go to Harvard or Yale. Um, it would be great if, uh, if you could read, but uh, in some senses, there's, there's probably Methodist and Baptist preachers around this time who probably were not great readers. But uh, you, you didn't have to, they didn't require preachers to have that be their full-time job. They didn't even need a church. So these Methodists and Baptists were, were preaching to people wherever they could find them, in barns and open areas, um, and anybody, just about anybody, could become a Methodist or a Baptist preacher. All right. Uh, one key difference here between the Second Great Awakening and the First Great Awakening. The First Great Awakening was in the 1730s, 1740s. We read a sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, where Jonathan Edwards was talking about just what a, what a hateful God uh, they believed in. But this time around, a lot of the preaching is emphasizing the loving God of the New Testament. And it's not emphasizing predestination, this idea that God had determined from your birth if you were going to heaven or hell. This time around, the Second Great Awakening believed in free will, right? That individuals could, could make their own choices. It was the more optimistic thinking. It was the belief that human beings could perfect society. Uh, Consequence-wise, a lot of the reform movements that we're going to get to in just a second were definitely inspired by this movement, this religious movement, probably temperance most so. The temperance movement definitely uh, grew immediately right out of this and pushed for and, and, and managed to convince a lot of people to cut back on their drinking. So we did see a decline in alcoholic consumption. Um, the outreach of the Second Great Awakening extended uh, into some previously untouched areas, heavily into the African-American community, especially the Methodists. So uh, one third of Methodists at one point in the early 1800s were black. And the Methodists were willing to allow black people to become licensed preachers. Richard Allen is going to become one of the most famous of these. Women could play a, a much bigger role in the Second Great Awakening than they could in the First Great Awakening. So they could become leaders of various religious classes. They could become exhorters at these, at these revivals. And they definitely are going to take on and begin to lead a bunch of benevolent associations that are uh, outgrowths of some of these uh, religious movements. I listed a few of them in the lower left just because I think they have such crazy names like the Ladies' Association for the Benefit of Gentlewomen of Good Family, reduced in fortune below the state of comfort to which they have been accustomed. Holy cow, try to say that in one breath. Or the Society for the Encouragement of Faithful Domestic Servants, or the Seventh Commandment Society, or the Society for Returning Young Women to Their Friends in the Country. So these are some of the benevolent associations that are being inspired by the uh, Second Great Awakening. Okay, uh, one other legacy is just, I don't have it typed up in the notes, but you see it in the chart in the middle on the left over there, is that the United States is still a way more religious society than many other like Western European countries that, that shares a somewhat similar culture to the United States. So 
religion, uh, religiosity has really declined in a lot of Western European countries and the rise of agnosticism and atheism has definitely um, risen much faster and further in those countries and we've seen it happen here in the United States. And I think a lot of that has to do with the Second Great Awakening. The Second Great Awakening created a lot of new schisms in, in churches and a lot of variety of churches and options in the United States, whereas you don't, a lot of those Western European countries had one official state church. And so if you got upset with that church, you didn't have that many places to turn. But in the United States, we have so many different varieties of, of religion. Think about how many, just in Mankato, how many different Lutheran synod churches there are. There's a lot of different options of them. So, you know, there's about as many varieties of Lutheranism as there are Pop-Tarts. There's just a different flavor for whatever, you know, whatever your belief situation is. So if you find one problem with one church, instead of, you know, just totally removing yourself from uh, religious beliefs and, and drifting toward agnosticism or atheism, what happens in the United States is a lot of people will just switch churches uh, and find it at different church. And, and so because of all those options, that's what's one of the things that's kept the United States a more religious place than, than a lot of Western European countries. All right, let's take a look at some of these reform movements that are inspired by the Second Great Awakening. First up is temperance, which, which is about trying to temper, trying to encourage people to temper their drinking. So it's about alcohol. Uh, the causes, the United States had a heck of an alcohol problem. We were a country that didn't, you know, didn't have a whole lot of clean water. Uh, so distilling uh, water into alcohol was one way to rid it of disease. Um, a lot of people kept uh, apple cider, hard apple cider. Uh, most people had apple trees around their houses, so hard apple cider was easy to come by. Um, we mentioned earlier about how a lot of Western uh, people living along the frontier had difficulty getting their grain crop to market and so would instead distill it into whiskey. So you just had easy access to liquor everywhere you looked. It was less expensive than tea. Uh, the average American drank something like seven gallons of pure alcohol a year. So we're talking like Everclear alcohol, seven gallons. Um, and this is the average American, all right? So you have to think that this number is being taken based off the whole U.S. population. Now, little children are not drinking that much. Women are not drinking that much. African-Americans are not given access to alcohol. So the, the average male of who was probably a teenager up to an adulthood is probably drinking way more than seven gallons of pure Everclear alcohol a year, uh, which is a pretty scary thing to think about. Another cause is that alcohol is 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 kind of uh, inspiring a lot of other like sinful behaviors. So child abuse, spousal abuse, um, men hanging out at bars where where we saw prostitutes and gambling, so a lot of vice is attached to it, and they're maybe coming home with STDs. Um, they're spending all the family's money at the bar. And you see some images on the left that are definitely drawing attention to this. The, the top one is called the Drunkard's Progress, where you see a guy, and it's like he's following these steps. He, he starts having fun drinking, and then his life, has, as you can see, the, the steps decline. Um, his life reaches chaos, and, and it's got a terrible ending. This cartoon, he ends up uh, committing suicide at the end of the at the end of that cartoon, but underneath the, those steps are his wife and daughter, who he has, he has now left um, to fend for themselves. And you see the lower left one, it says daddy's in there, they're looking at a bar. Um, so the temperance movement was somewhat successful. A lot of women definitely got involved with this. They, they were involved in the Second Great Awakening. Um, the Second Great Awakening, a lot of these people believed that they could just push society to be a little bit more perfect. It would trigger Christ's return. So they're looking at their community and they're thinking, what sin could I target in my community? 
right? And they're looking, well, what do, what do I think to be the greatest sin in my community? And for a lot of them, they looked at alcohol as the greatest sin. So it was women who were leading this charge, pushing for their husbands uh, to reform their personal behaviors, pushing for their community to reform their, first, their behavior. So a lot of women would, uh, they'd form these clubs called the Washingtonian Clubs, and they would gather outside bars and they would just sit silently and pray. It was almost like a sit-in type protest, except happening outside the bar. And so if you were a man who wanted to go in the bar to have a drink, you had to like walk through all of these silent praying women who were probably giving you the look of death. So there's, they're exerting like societal pressure on men. Um, and what they would do is they'd get men to, to sign these pledges to cut back on their drinking. And you see the, a pledge form list uh, over there on the left. Uh, again, they were not pushing for like prohibition. They were not pushing for the country to prohibit alcohol or to make it illegal. They were trying to target people on an individual level and, and get people to change their behavior voluntarily. Um, it did work to a certain extent. We did see the consumption of alcohol cut, cut back in the United States from about seven gallons on average to about two gallons on average a year. However, uh, there's going to be some big immigration waves coming in the country of some heavy drinkers. The Germans love beer. The Irish love whiskey. Uh, and these immigration waves are going to uh, mean that the United States is going to continue to have an alcohol problem for quite a while. All right. Uh, another uh, movement that around this time is the women's rights movement. So cause-wise, what's going on for women? Uh, women have some serious legal issues. Uh, the, the term that, that can be used to kind of sum up the legal status uh, for married women around this time is called coverture. And it was the concept that men were the legal representative for the household. So women relinquished their property when they entered into a marriage. The, the men would become the property owner. Uh, the men were legally liable for the family, uh, for crimes committed by women or children or servants within the family. The men were held legally liable for those. Uh, a wife, if she was earning a wage or, or uh, picking up any extra income on the side, she had no claim to those earnings. Uh, those, those became her husband's earnings. Um, but these things did not often work in reverse. If like uh, if if a man were to die, uh, all of those that property and wealth would not immediately become his spouse, his wife's. It would often uh, revert to his oldest male child. And divorce laws did not work in women's favor in 37 states. Uh, women had no right to their children if they left their husbands voluntarily. And of course, women had no voting rights. So all of this bubbles up into something called the Seneca Falls Convention, which happens in the 1840s in upstate New York, and they draft this Declaration of Rights that you see listed on the left. It's kind of a historic document for the feminist movement of the 1800s. And what they do is they model it off of the Declaration of Independence. And you see in the Declaration of Independence, they, they take that famous clause, the history of mankind is a history of repeated injuries and usurpations on the part of man, and here's where they twist it, on the part of man toward women. Having indirect object, the establishment of an absolute tyranny over her. To prove this, let facts be submitted to a candid world. So they're taking Jefferson's language and they're spinning it to point out the problem with the patriarchy in the United States. And the first thing that they list is the fact that women do not have the right to vote. They say they've never been given the, the elective franchise, the franchises of uh, voting rights. But then if you read number two, three, four, five, six, all the other ones, a lot of them have to do with this coverture problem about the legal rights women have, about their inability to own property, about the marriage issues they encounter, about divorce laws, about custody issues. Uh, and so you can hit pause and, and kind of peruse the items on that list, but it's a, it's a rather interesting list. So this is the convention that, that uh, gets attributed to like launching the feminist movement. So it defines feminism in the 19th century, uh, the Seneca Falls Convention, and these, this list of items. 
right? Uh, so one positive consequence, the feminist, uh, the women's rights movement here will, will open the doors for colleges for women. Oberlin College is one of the first colleges to admit women. Uh, it's in Ohio. It's in the 1830s. Charles G. Finney, that preacher we mentioned earlier from the Second Great Awakening, will be a leader of Oberlin. Uh, so here's where we see the connection to the Second Great Awakening. However, uh, they don't write, there are some like uh, things that this movement does not achieve. They are not able to get women the right to vote for a long time. This movement gets eclipsed by the anti-slavery movement and uh, voting rights have to stay on the back burner for quite a while here. Okay, here's another source to take a look at. Lucy Stone was one of the leaders of the uh, early, early feminist movement. And this is a what, quite an interesting document. This was a marriage uh, document that her and her su husband signed in 1855. And you can see when they, they wrote this together and they signed it together at their wedding, um, they were protesting. It was a, basically a protest document. They were protesting the, the typical notion of marriage or the legal status of marriage. And they were saying, here's all the things we're not going to submit to. Um, we're not going to, uh, basically, Henry Blackwell was giving up all of these rights saying, I'm, I'm not going to take my wife's property. I'm not going to uh, usurp her earnings. I'm not going to automatically claim custody of any children we might have. Um, and you can, again, you can read the list. You'll notice a lot of similarities to the declaration of, uh, that was produced from Seneca Falls, the Seneca Falls Declaration. All right, utopian movements also come out of this. Some pretty interesting utopian movements here. So again, this, the, here's the millennium coming up again. There's a lot of people buying into this idea that Christ's return was imminent. We just needed to push society to become a little bit more perfect and keep the, tr the train of progress going and we would get there, right? And Christ would return. And so some people had the idea that if they just set out on their own, instead of trying to reform their own community, if they just moved out into and created their own perfect community and created the perfection in that isolated environment, then that would trigger Christ's return. Um, so they made their own little utopia, uh, so to speak, their own little perfect world. So another cause is this is all happening in the context of the market revolution. You know, not previously, like 90 some percent of the country was a farmer involved in agriculture. Uh, but the, um, the way agriculture was being done, all the improvements there, meaning there was a displacement of workers. There didn't need to be as many people producing in agriculture. Um, there, there was just a surplus of labor, though. There was a, where are they going to go? There's not a, like they can all be converted into factory work just yet. So you had a, a big population kind of waiting in the wings, looking for something to do, didn't want factory work, not really interested in farming. And these utopias offered them maybe a place to relieve their anxiety. I'm going to talk about two that I think are the most interesting, the Shaker and the Oneida. And so these are consequences, right? So the Shaker are, uh, you see an image of them on the top left. You should notice that the men and the women are segregated there. They're separated. Um, the Shakers believed, what's unique about the Shaker and the Oneida is they, they both believed like they wanted to try to create a kind of a sin-free community. And both of them thought when they looked at the world, you know, the temperance movement looked at what, what do they think is the core sin that's ruining society? They thought alcohol. And a lot of these utopias think that the core sin that is, that is ruining society is like sexual desires um, and jealousies tr triggered by sexual desires. And so the, what the Shakers decided to do is make everybody take a vow and pledge to be celibate, to not engage in sex whatsoever. And so they totally separate men from women. There are, there are no like marriages here in Shaker society. So everybody has kind of their own room. 
Um, it, it is a it is a communal society, though, right? So we're not gonna we're not gonna have families pairing off and and husband and wife raising children. It's like the whole society uh, raises. You know, they, they do they do work together. Women work with women, and men work with men. They keep men and women separate. This is about as close as they would get, as you see in that that uh, they're doing kind of a communal dance there. Um, but they told them to like channel all of their attention and energy into handicraft, carpentry, farming. And so the Shakers are, if you watch Antiques Roadshow, if you know anybody who's into antiques, um, Shakers are famous for a lot of their carpentry and their furniture that they made um, because they got so darn good at it because they were just trying to do anything they could to keep their mind off sex. So they would, they would make the best rocking chairs imaginable. They would make the best hutches and chests and tables and chairs and barns and um, furniture and, and they got they got quite good at it. Now the problem is they're celibate so they don't believe in procreation so they had a hard time like increasing their population. Um, they were known for being a place that if you had an unwanted child you could drop off your unwanted child there. Um, so they they were they would take orphans. That was one way for them to get uh, to get new people. But they also picked up people who who thought that this was maybe an ideal way of life. All right, um, but that celibacy thing does kind of lead to their decline in in the long run. All right, it's hard for them to maintain a, a sizable population there. And then the Oneida. Okay, I'm not I'm not quite sure which one of these two groups is is weirder here. But the Oneida, uh, we see the Oneida massive uh, house. Uh, kind of this mansion on the lower left. And the United are very similar. They also thought like sexual desires were one of the core problems. But instead of trying to get everybody to be celibate, what they said is we're just not going to allow people to be monogamous. We're not going to allow people to to establish one-on-one relationships. So if you enter an, an Oneida society, then you are, it's free love. Then you're like, you're married to everybody. All right, so men and women were free to, you know, one week you, you shack up with uh, one person and the next week you shack up with the other person. Now, typically, you had to ask the whole group for permission first. Like, you would, they would have these meetings where you would you'd get up and say, I'd like to establish a relationship with this person here. And then, like, the group would would give their okay to that. And, and the group would also, like, shine... Um, shun people and say, you know, you two have been spending too much time together. You guys have been together for like a week now. That's too long. Like you guys need to don't get attached, right? This, this uh, sexual desires are leading to too much attachment here. Um, so they, uh, they also tried to lead like a communal lifestyle where everything was done together. Everything was shared together. All the work that was produced, all the wealth was distributed evenly. Um, more kind of like a communistic type society. The Shakers lived that way. The Oneida lived that way. Um, the Shakers found ways to market their furniture. The, the Oneida struck it rich by making silverware that uh, they marketed in, during the market revolution era. And it was fine silverware. And everybody wanted to get their hands on some Oneida silverware. Uh, and it's still marketed today, oddly enough. You, you might have Oneida silverware in your kitchen. Go check your silverware drawer and look on the back of your fork and see if it's got the Oneida label on it. But they're still pumping out silverware. Now, they... they they don't have a utopia, communal, free love society still living there, but they still have a functioning factory uh, pumping out silverware. It's in uh, upstate New York. Kind of crazy to think about. Religious movements. Um, those other groups were religious, but uh, well, one religious group I think we should probably acknowledge is the, the Mormons. So they're also uh, a new religious group that's going to grow out of the Second Great Awakening. And uh, they 
Um, what's unique about them is they're probably the most successful religious denomination in start ever started in the United States. If you think about all the other big religions that are still existing in the United States, a lot of those denominations were not started in the United States. Lutheranism was started over in Europe. Catholicism was started over in Europe. Methodism was started over in Europe. Uh, Calvinism or Presbyterianism or Congregationalism, all that stuff was uh, started over in Europe. Mormonism was started here within the United States. Uh, but as you see on the map, it had to move around quite a bit. So the Mormons um, made people who lived around them feel kind of uneasy because they would organize group militias for self-defense. They would vote together as a block, which threatened political power. Um, and so there was these like Mormon wars that would happen in the Illinois, Missouri area. You can see Joseph Smith got his start in in upstate New York, where all of the big Second Great Awakening happening stuff. It's called the Burned Over District, that western New York area. That's where Charles G. Finney was preaching. Uh, that's where a lot of the revivals were, and that's where Joseph Smith came out of. Um, so first he's he's going to move to Ohio, and then it's gonna you're going to see some movement to Missouri, and then Illinois. But eventually it gets to the point where there's so much like targeted violence between Mormons and their neighbors that the Mormons decide that they're going to try to leave the country, and so they they move to Mexico. Uh, they move to what would be right around the Great Salt Lake. Uh, now, they don't know that there's going to be a war coming down the road between the United States and Mexico, and that Mexico is going to lose the top half of its country, and that they're going to wind up right back in the United States, this country that they were fleeing from. Um, but that would, be, that would be coming down the road. So that's Mormonism. And the last and probably most important reform movement to grow out of the Second Great Awakening would be the abolition movement, which we'll spend more time talking about in our next topic. But highly influenced by the Second Great Awakening, Charles G. Finney, the biggest preacher of this time, was definitely uh, not a fan of slavery. He refused to extend communion to any slave owners. The, the Richard Allen, the most famous black preacher in the Methodist church, he starts the um, AME church, which is one of the biggest black churches in the United States today, uh, obtained his freedom uh, using Christian arguments. He's saying slavery is a sin. And, and you saw many, this became a movement. We saw more and more anti-slavery people begin to attack slavery as a sin and telling slave owners you're going to go to hell. So it's, it's a new argument. It's not the argument that it's a violation of natural rights. It's a, it's a new argument. It's a violation of Christianity. Okay, so these abolitionists, this is different than being anti-slavery, but an abolitionist um, is calling for not a slow end to slavery, but like an immediate end to slavery and not compensation for slave owners, but no compensation, uncompensated emancipation. So they're, they're more radical. It's going to push the anti-slavery movement in a more radical direction. Uh, They're they going to use some different tactics. They're going to use visual imagery like you see up on the top. Uh, where it says, am I not a man and a brother? Am I not a woman and a sister? I'm trying to remind people that a lot of these slaves have ancestors who were white, right? A lot of slave owners raped uh, the female slaves and, and their offspring was often half white, half black, but still slave and, and half brothers with, with uh, their, you know, maybe potentially future owners. So that, that imagery was meant to solicit that idea. Uh, on the lower left, you see a, a map showing petitions and who's signing them, anti-slavery petitions. This, uh, a tactic of this movement was that they would, they would get petition drives and they'd sign petitions and they'd flood Congress with anti-slavery petitions. It's important to note that women played a big role in the abolition movement. Um, they accounted for about two-thirds of the signatures on a lot of these petitions. Now, um, I probably should have put the women's rights movement after the abolition movement because 
the uh, women's rights movement grows out of the abolition movement. So women are attending a lot of anti-slavery and abolition meetings. And it's at some of these big conventions, they're told that they cannot talk. Uh, they can't be public speakers at these meetings. And so a group of them get together and they say, we might have to deal with women's rights issues first before we deal with uh, slavery issues. And so that's why a group of women decide to have this meeting at Seneca Falls. Uh, it's, it's no mistake, it's no coincidence that a lot, all the people at Seneca Falls are abolitionists. They're anti-slavery people. Frederick Douglass attends the Seneca Falls Convention. All right, let's talk about Andrew Jackson. Let's talk about democracy. Let's talk about uh, how politics is changing during this time. What's going to happen is that democracy is going to expand. More people are going to be able to vote. So cause-wise, what, what caused that? There's a, there's a famous French writer who comes to the United States named Alexis de Tocqueville. He writes this book called Democracy in America. Lots of students have to read it in college if you take a college history class or a political science class. Um, because he's thought to be one of the best observers of American democracy. And, and one of his key insights, he's trying to figure out, he's French, he's trying to figure out why democracy is working in the United States, but it's not in France. And what he notices, one of the key differences between the United States and France is like that the United States has all of these associations. I listed some women's benevolent associations earlier that had some crazy names, but there's just, there's a bunch of them. And, and like everybody belongs to a different group. Maybe it's a church group. Maybe it's a lodge, like the, um, the Mason Lodge. Maybe it's a fraternity. Maybe it's a volunteer association. Maybe it's a company. Maybe it's a league. But everybody's in a bunch of these groups. And, and at the top left, I listed a bunch of them. Th this list comes from a parade that was held uh, for Lincoln's funeral. These were all the different groups that would march behind the Lincoln's funeral train. And you get a sense for just how many like voluntary associations there were in the country at this time. Um, a lot of immigration, a lot of immigrant societies. So the thing about these societies is that they all practice democracy. They all have like a democratic structure. They all have presidents. They all have vice presidents. They all have secretaries. They all have votes on issues. They all have national meetings and conventions. And what, what the joke was is like every American is a president of something or has been a president of something, you know? And, and you can think about this kind of like still happening today. We do student council. Uh, you're in all sorts of different groups. You, you, practice, you practice democracy all the time. And de Tocqueville noticed that. Tocqueville said, this is not happening in France. This is something unique to the United States. Second big cause had to do with states dropping their property requirements for voting. So you can see the chart on the left that gradually over time, there are fewer and fewer states that said that you had to own property in order to vote. This was something the Federalists kind of, they liked this idea. Hamilton, Hamilton liked the idea of re having property requirements uh, in order to vote. He, remember, he wasn't so trusting of the uneducated masses. Not sure if we want to let all these une uneducated people start voting. But, but the Jeffersonians, the Democratic Republicans, this is definitely a belief of them. We need to get more power in the hands of the common man. We need to get rid of property requirements for voting. So we call this, when there is no property requirement for voting, we call it universal white male Suffrage. You still had to be a man, still had to be white to vote. Suffrage means the right to vote. It doesn't mean suffering, it just means the right to vote. Britain did not have universal white male suffrage until 1918. And you can see the United States basically, it shifts in that direction right before the Civil War. The 1820s to 1860s, the United States is getting rid of property requirements. Another contributing factor, another cause, third cause, would probably be mass media, encouraging more people to become political. 
newspapers were super cheap. They were uh, maybe a penny. So we called the penny press. Why were they so cheap? Because the United States Post Office allowed them to be shipped for free. So anybody, it was very easy to launch a newspaper uh, and, and ship it all over the country. And it definitely tied the country together. And, it, and most of the newspapers were very partisan. So they, they, they encouraged people to get interested in politics. And then we got to bring up Andrew Jackson. So Andrew Jackson loses an election in 1824. He's very bitter about that. And he spends the next four years campaigning for president. Uh, so he, he barnstorms. He goes to all the different states and he tries to appeal to common people, the common man, quote unquote. He appeals to the poor. Uh, be, as, as you can see, he, he notices the trend, right? There, there are more and more states that are getting rid of their property requirements. And it's Western states who are often leading the way. And that's where he's campaigning. He's a Westerner himself. He's a Tennessee guy. And he's pushing for this. He knows this benefits him if he can get more of these guys to vote. Consequence-wise, uh, how, does, how does the United States change as a result of this? Well, what we start to see is that party-nominating conventions uh, replace congressional caucuses for selecting presidential candidates. That's what we use we, today, uh, we use something similar to that, but they, uh, we, have, we still have party conventions. The Republicans have their national convention. Democrats have a national convention uh, to select a presidential candidate. It didn't used to be that way. It used to be there, there was a group of congressmen that would get together. They would call the group a caucus, and a cr congressional caucus would select a presidential candidate. So the people had no say whatsoever in who the candidates were going to be for a given election. And this changes in the 1830s. The Know Nothing Party, which is the third party, is the first to do it. They have a nominating convention. So they have one big meeting. They invite anybody who wants to come to come, and they can cast a vote, and they can determine who the Know Nothing Party's candidate for president is going to be. Andrew Jackson watches this. Andrew Jackson suggests, this is while he's president, by the way. So he says, we got to do this in the future. Democratic Party, we're doing a convention. And so the Democrats start doing it, and it becomes a norm uh, from the 1830s on. This is, uh, we've been doing conventions, national conventions. We also see states begin to switch how they decide who their electoral votes are going to go to. Um, they allow people to vote. They allow for there to be a popular vote at the state level. So the, the people in the state can cast a vote for who that state's electoral vote should go to. And, and what they used to do is just have state legislatures decide that. So again, it's the Western states leading the way on this. Uh, we start to see more and more campaigns. Andrew Jackson spent four years doing it, but other people copy him and they, do, you know, they turn them into big parties. So there's public rallies, there's picnics, there's parades, there's alcohol often offered to common men. Um, and uh, this, this works, right? So one of the big last consequences is that it de definitely drives up voter participation. You see it in the two charts there. By 18, uh, 1830s, 1840s, we're seeing like uh, something close to, by 1840, we're seeing like 80% turnout rates. Uh, we're seeing almost every state allowing people to vote on who that state's electoral college votes should go to for president. Uh, and you see that the massive spike in the voter turnout rate on the chart on the lower left. You see 1820 from 1840 just does this massive uh, increase there. So uh, elections would get a little rowdy. That would be another downside, another consequence. The rowdiness of elections was often used as a reason why women should not be allowed to vote. It just was not an atmosphere that women should be in. And if you want to know what it looked like, it looked like this. This is a painting done by uh, George Caleb Bingham called The County Election. And notice how it's all white men, 
And uh, one other thing to notice is that it is a mix of rich and poor. So you'll notice some guys are, are finer dressed than others. But voting is done publicly. This guy right here is casting his vote. He's not, notice how he's not marking a piece of paper. He has to announce out loud who he's voting for. And then these people here, this is probably a judge making him swear that he is who he claims to be. And then these guys here are going to tally his vote. Um, so you could, you could sit close and listen and, and tally votes yourself and make sure things matched up. This guy here is probably bribing a voter. He, he's offering him maybe what could be like a ticket to go get some booze, some alcohol. And this guy over here is probably cashed in on that. He's, he's drinking. This guy here has probably had too much to drink. Uh, this guy here maybe has gotten into a fight. It's very easy to bully people when you know who they're voting for. You hear them out loud. So you, you can threaten people in front of this courthouse. And, and uh, this is going to be a drunken, rowdy, brawlish atmosphere. And this is one of the arguments for why women should not be allowed to vote is it just was not a place for women. That's what the people were saying at that time, unfortunately. All right. So let's get to the face of this. Andrew Jackson. Um, this is sometimes called the Jacksonian era or Jacksonian democracy. White, universal white male suffrage. The, the face of the common man is Andrew Jackson. He's the guy that that kind of becomes uh, who we think about when we think about democracy in the 1830s and 40s, or 1820s and 30s, I should say. So the four big things we're going to talk about with Andrew Jackson, ways that he changed government. He's a pretty important president. Love him or hate him, he's a pretty important president, but um, he definitely does some big changes while he's president for two terms. So the first big change he makes is called the spoil system. Remember when Thomas Jefferson got elected in 1800? Uh, there was all these Federalists in office, and he doesn't, like, fire them all. He basically says they can keep their jobs. Um, I'll appoint Democratic Republicans when openings appear. I I'm not going to just blanketly fire everybody. I might fire people if there's a reason to fire them. Okay, that's what Jefferson did, right? He let Federalists keep their jobs, not Andrew Jackson. So Andrew Jackson comes in office, and he says, I want rotation in office. I want it to be more Democratic. I want more people to get involved. This is his argument for what he's about to do, that he's gonna make things more democratic. What he really is up to is he's rewarding his supporters with patronage, which is basically a government job that's given to you in return for your donation to the party. So he's rewarding his supporters with post office jobs, with custom collector jobs, with um, all these jobs. He, but he has to fire people first. He, he removes something like 919 people, fires 919 people in his first year in office. 423 of them are postmasters, which is more than all of the previous presidents had done in 40 years. These jobs were good jobs. It, it seems like a joke today. Who would want to be a, all these people wanted a post office job, but postmaster salaries were fee based. So you got a cut of every single stamp that you sold. So if you sell, let's just say a five cent stamp, a postmaster might get like one penny out of that five cents. So these were these were good jobs. Same with like if you if you worked in a land office, or you were a registrar for selling land, you got fees based off of the land that you sold. Immigration registrars got fees money based off of the paperwork they were processing. So all of these government jobs had some really nice kickbacks to them. Um, and Andrew Jackson was quick to recognize that. He would reward his supporters with these with these jobs. So the sad fact though, the problem with the spoil system is that instead of hiring people based off of merit, we're basing it now off of what have you done for the party? What have you done for me? How much money have you donated to the party? Gonna lead to some problems down the road. Indian removal, one of the most controversial things Andrew Jackson does, one of the worst things Andrew Jackson does. Uh, there are five tribes living in the South and you see it on the map there. 
which are which were known as the quote unquote civilized tribes. We're talking about the Cherokee, the Creek, the Choctaw, the Chickasaw, and the Seminole. If you look at where their land is located, we're, we're talking Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, parts of North Carolina, Tennessee. This is some of the most coveted land in the 1830s here. The cotton boom is in full swing. And this land is prime cotton land, especially that Chickasaw, Choctaw land in Mississippi and, and some of the southern uh, Cherokee land and Creek land there in Alabama, Georgia. Uh, there's also hopes that there's maybe gold on some of this land. So the states like Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi are having a hard time just taking this land. The justifications that were previously used don't work on these tribes. They, they had done everything that like George Washington and Thomas Jefferson had said they wanted them to do. They had assimilated. They had become white. They had adopted plantation farming. It was the men who were doing the farming, not the women. Uh, they had adopted public schools. They were doing all of these things that, you know, they, they were becoming Christian. Look at how they were dressing. See their images. on The, the group on the lower left are Cherokee. The young girl on the lower right uh, is Chickasaw. So they, they looked white by all appearances. Um, so all of these old justifications for stealing land just didn't, didn't hold up with these groups. Um, what Jackson ends up doing is that he, uh, Georgia and, and a lot of these states are passing some seriously strange laws, uh, which is allowing for some outright discrimination of these groups, uh, saying things like forbidding these groups from voting, uh, forbidding them from owning property, forbidding them from testifying against whites in court, forbidding them from obtaining credit. Georgia passed a law that allowed you to legally hunt a member of the Creek tribe, right? That's pretty crazy. And Jackson was telling these tribes to submit to state law, or he would be the, the he would say, well, I'm gonna offer you a humane option, or submit to these state laws where you can legally be hunted, or voluntarily move to Oklahoma. Um, not really a viable option for a lot of these tribes. And the Supreme Court stands up and supports them. Supreme Court initially says like, you know, Georgia, you can't do what you're doing. You can't just take land from these people. There are treaties that were signed where the federal government acknowledged their right to have this land. So in Georgia, things are getting ugly. Uh, there's like an undeclared war happening in Georgia. Jackson pushes for an Indian Removal Act. In 1830, uh, Congress passes an Indian Removal Act, barely. And it passes 102 to 97 in the House of Representatives. And again, it's the three-fifths compromise that probably allows this thing to pass. These southern states would not have the numbers they, that they had in the House of Representatives without being able to count 60% of their enslaved population and having that contribute to their membership in the House. So 102 to 97, close vote. Andrew Jackson's argument, he plays himself off as if he's somehow being charitable here, that it is like saving these Native Americans from becoming extinct. I'm saving you from having Georgians kill you. Well, instead of Andrew Jackson doing the reasonable thing and just asking the Georgians to be human beings um, and stop trying to kill Native Americans, uh, he, he basically says you got to get out to the Native Americans. Um, and it took a while, all right? So there's a lot of division within these tribes as to whether or not they want to move. Some do, um, some don't. But the final straw is in 1838 after Jackson leaves office, the army is sent in to round up uh, a lot of people who are still remaining. And this is the Trail of Tears. They're put on a forced march in the middle of winter with limited supplies, which uh, leads to a massive death rate, 33%. Um, something like 4,000 out of 12,000 die on the Trail of Tears. The removal is important in, in allowing for the expansion of cotton and slavery. If you take a look again at that map, that land is prime cotton production land. So there's about 100 million acres 
of prime cotton land that has opened up in the South, which allows for a huge expansion of slavery in the South. So terrible consequences all the way around for Indian removal. Nullification crisis. Uh, in Andrew Jackson's uh, first term, and doesn't really get revolved until his resolved, excuse me, until his second term is this nullification issue. When he entered office, there was uh, 1828, the year he got elected, the, the um, Congress passed a pretty high tariff. So they jacked the tariff up to about 45%. You can take a look at the map and see who voted for this and who opposed this. So the yes votes are in green um, and the no votes are that orangish red color. You can see it's mostly the North voting in favor of this tariff. The South does not want the tariff. The South doesn't want trade wars. They don't, if the United States jacks up its tariff, foreign countries will likely respond by increasing their tariff. And the South depends on exports. They're cotton producers by this time. And so they, they don't like the idea of the United States raising their tariff. So what happens? Well, John C. Calhoun, that werewolf vampire looking dude that on the lower left, he, he should look somewhat familiar to you. you. You've seen this guy right here if you've ever had a nightmare before. And if you look very carefully, at his collar. That is the world's most amazing neckbeard uh, coming out of this werewolf's collar, John C. Calhoun. This is a guy that uh, the Minneapolis had a lake named after, Lake Calhoun, that recently was changed to Belimakaska. So um, quite the strange looking dude, but he was, he was Andrew Jackson's vice president, John C. Calhoun was. Uh, and what, he, what is he up to during his reign there? He secretly, he's from South Carolina, he secretly drafts an, uh, an exposition for South Carolina for the state legislature to pass, which calls for nullification, this old idea that Jefferson and Madison threw out there during the Alien and Sedition Act. So he brings this nullification idea back up, and he says, South Carolina doesn't like this federal law, thinks it's unconstitutional, South Carolina's going to nullify it. And, it. and it creates this nullification crisis. Can a state ignore a federal law? Can a state refuse to collect this tax? This is a tax on imports, right? So South Carolinians are like, we're not going to collect this tax. Um, we're going to nullify it. Um, in 1832, there was a compromise. There was a bargain. The tariff was lowered to 35%. Everybody was okay with that. Again, except for South Carolina, which has always been our craziest state. Uh, it's, it's often said that South Carolina is uh, too small to be its own country, but too large to be an insane asylum. And in South Carolina, they go nuts. So they declare this compromise tariff to be void. They raise a 25,000-man volunteer militia. They threaten to secede in 1832. And they enact an oath for state office that says, you have to swear your primary loyalty to the state first and not the federal government. You only owe a conditional loyalty to the federal government. Precursor to the Civil War here a little bit, folks, right? Civil War is going to come down the road in 1861. And guess who's going to lead the way in secession? It's going to be South Carolina coming out of the gates first on that issue. Jackson handles it. Uh, this is maybe one of the more successful things he does. He takes a very aggressive, strong stand against South Carolina's actions. And he publicly postures himself in a very aggressive way and, and says... I'm going to hang the first, I'm going to take the army, I'm commander in chief, we're going to march to South Carolina, and I will personally hang the first South Carolinian person I see to the first tree I can find. Now, behind him, back doors, there's kind of bargaining, compromising happening that's way less aggressive. And there is a compromise tariff that is passed in 1833, which reduces tariffs and calms the waters down with South Carolina. But South Carolina still is kind of always worried about 
uh, itself first and foremost before anybody else's needs or interests. And that's going to become a problem when we get to 1860. Um, oh, God, there's, oh, there's some nightmare fuel for you. All right, National Bank. Uh, this is a, one of the last big things that Andrew Jackson does as president is that he decides, you know what, I haven't done enough damage. Let's, uh, let's kill the American economy here. Let's try to destroy the National Bank. So the National Bank had been renewed. Uh, remember Alexander Hamilton who kind of created it. it. It had a term limit to it, though. And so Congress would renew it periodically. Um, so it was in its second iteration. So sometimes it's called the second bank of the United States. It was going to be up for renewal during Jackson's presidency. It was big. It was one of the largest corporations in the country. It was really the only, it had charters in various states. So it kind of had a headquarters, but then it had branch banks. Um, so it was a nationwide business. It was probably one of the only nationwide business uh, in the country. It held all of the tax deposits for the Department of Treasury. Um, it, but again, it was part public and part private. So the government only held one fifth of the stock. So four fifths of this um, was was privately held and four fifths of the board of directors were private individuals that the government had no control over. Uh, private individuals could go into this bank and deposit money and get loans. Um, and it was a bank that, that attempted to make a profit. Jackson didn't like it. Jackson distrusted the bank. This is the bank that issued paper money that, that people in the United States found to be the most trustworthy paper money. Uh, so it was the most widely distributed paper money. It was the most frequently used paper money in this country. Jackson not a fan of that. Uh, Jackson thought that the bank and who they were giving loans to and who was uh, profiting off of the shares, who the shareholders were from this bank, uh, were mostly just elites, some foreigners, some bondholders were foreigners for this. And, and Jackson never liked that. Jackson was born a pretty common man. Now, he'd grown to become a pretty rich person. He was a slave owner from Tennessee. Um, but he had some common origins, common man origins. So didn't like the elite and how they were benefiting from this. The Congress votes to renew the bank. Jackson uses a veto. Veto, not common thing to do here in the United States. So pretty rare for a president to issue a veto. Pretty undemocratic thing to do for a president to issue a veto. If you think about it, when the House and the Senate uh, pass something and Jackson swoops in and vetoes it. So that alone meant that the, the bank only had a few more years left to live. But then Jackson takes it a step further and decides to just kill it swiftly by withdrawing all of the federal government's deposits from the bank and then redistributing them to state banks, what he called pet banks, which were controlled by Democrats, people of his party. So another way for him to control some patronage here. Uh, and what that meant was that there was no more like national bank that had all of these controls over these branches and the government was now powerless to mitigate any swings in the business cycle. And so what you see is every 20 years it'd be an economic panic in this country. Uh, until we get to the Federal Reserve in 1913. So 1830s all the way to 1913, not really good economic times in the United States. Every 20 years, it'd be a big crash. Um, and, and Jackson triggered one of the first ones. So Jackson, remember, not a fan of paper money. And um, he undermines trust in paper money. And so all of these people lose faith in this national bank paper currency, and they're trying to get it cashed in quickly for gold or silver. And that's, you know taking out a lot of money out of the money supply. It's decreasing the money supply, which means there's less money going around. There's less goods and services being bought. And that leads to a massive recession. It leads to the panic of, of 1873, unfortunately. Um, the uh, Andrew Jackson, let's take a second and talk about this, this old guy here. So as you can, this is, uh, he lived long enough to have his photograph taken. So that's one of his, the last pictures of him there before he died. Uh, this man 
was uh, lived quite a life and uh, involved. If if you know any anecdotes about him, you know that he probably uh, he he was involved in lots of duels. He would challenge people to shooting contests of the death, often because they insulted his wife. And he would say, "I got to defend my honor, my wife's honor. Uh, let's cha- let's have a duel." So. This quote comes from a a A-Push textbook called American Pageant that I just found to be a really, really great quote. So it says, his irritability and emaciated condition resulted in part from long-term bouts with dysentery, malaria, tuberculosis, and lead poisoning from two bullets that he carried in his body from near fatal duels. His autobiography was written in his lined face. Yeah, I would say so. Yeah, that man had quite the autobiography. In fact, when he dies close to his death, He's asked what uh, regrets he has. And he says his two biggest regrets are not killing Henry Clay, Speaker of the House, and not killing John C. Calhoun, his own vice president. So this man had already been involved in many, many duels. He had killed a couple people in duels. And when it asked what his regrets were, it was that he just wished he could have killed a few more people. Um, I should back up and point out, there, you know, there is some controversy right now about Andrew Jackson being on the $20 bill. Uh, he, you know, I think one of the more interesting arguments for why he should not be on the $20 bill is that Andrew Jackson himself would not want to be on the $20 bill. He hated paper money. He would be disgusted to see himself on the $20 bill. So that alone should be a good enough reason to get him off the $20 bill. In addition to all the terrible things that he did to Native Americans, um, you know, the, those are the biggest reasons why Andrew Jackson should not be on our, on our paper currency. I said earlier he had a parrot who got kicked out of his funeral. Uh, one other little anecdote about Andrew Jackson. So he uh, apparently had a parrot, and the only words that he taught that parrot how to say were swear words. So this parrot was brought to his funeral, and the parrot was squawking swear words so loud in the back of the church that they had to remove the parrot from Andrew Jackson's funeral. Um, that's a, the last anecdote about him. So when uh, a couple topics ago, we talked about the Federalist Party dying out. And there, there was this era we call the era of good feelings, but there was only one political party. It was Jefferson's party, the Democratic Republicans. They were starting to call themselves just Democrats now. So they dropped that Republican part of their name and they were just known as Democrats. And they've been known as that ever since. And so in Andrew Jackson's era, it's the Democratic Party, but it was the same party that Jefferson started. Andrew Jackson is so divisive. He's a loved man, but he's also a deeply hated man. He's so divisive that a new political party comes around just to oppose him, just because of how much they hate Andrew Jackson. So let's spend some time talking about when we're now entering the second political party era. We're now entering a new era where there's two political parties clashing with each other again. Uh, and the Democratic Party, led by Andrew Jackson, what are their beliefs? They believe in uh, power of the individual, liberty of the individual, especially the common man. They share that with, Andrew, with uh, Thomas Jefferson. They are definitely a white supremacist party. They pushed for Indian removal, and they definitely support the expansion of slavery. They hate the National Bank. They don't like that it benefits elites. Uh, and they'd like to leave a lot more work up to the states. Let states handle internal improvements. Don't have the federal government get into that. That's the Democratic Party. Their opponents, the Whigs, the Whig Party, their leader is Henry Clay. That's the individual you see on the left there. That's one of the guys that Andrew Jackson wished he would have killed. They want a stronger federal government. They want the federal government to handle internal improvements. They want to develop the West. They want transportation. They want tariffs. Uh, They want to see more manufacturing in the United States. They want a national bank. They want more public schools. They like the reform movements. They like the temperance reform movements. 
uh, anything that can decrease violence in this country. They, however, are not going to be that long-lived because they never get elected in big numbers, and they're never able to, to, if they're not getting elected, they don't have that patronage power where they can reward their supporters with government jobs. So you kind of have to win a series of elections first in order to get that power. The Whigs, unfortunately, do not do that. They're short-lived. They do oppose Andrew Jackson. Uh, your final question in your guided notes has to do with this cartoon and, and having you analyze it because this is a possible short answer question, which is taking a look at this Jackson cartoon and then uh, identifying like what's its point of view. So you should know when you look at this cartoon that it's not, a, it's not the cartoonist is not a big fan of Andrew Jackson. He hates Andrew Jackson. So it's definitely representing a Whig point of view. The clues. Notice how Andrew Jackson is drawn to look like a king. Americans don't like monarchy. Notice how Jackson is trampling on a torn up copy of the Constitution. Notice how he's holding the veto uh, in his left hand. That's not something that most people, fans of democracy like as a president vetoing a democratically passed law. In this case, it, was a, it would have been the National Bank that he's vetoing there. So those are your clues that that is a, um, an anti-Whig cartoon. So that's a possible short answer question. As always, as I end this thing, is to remind you that there are other possible short answer questions. Take a look at them, and we will uh, see you next time.